Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card, so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com slash gabfest to get your first two meals free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 6, 2015, the Predator in the Bathroom edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me in Washington. Hello. Hey, John. I'm happy to be with you. I thought you were going to be in New York, so I'm happy to see you. No, I was I was in New York until I was on the train. Now I'm back. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, that's Chuckle, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. She is in virtual reality, since apparently the New York Times Magazine is all VR. That's right, except I had nothing to do with any of it except to ooh and ah appropriately. Um, can I just say that after our quiet car discussion, I've now ridden the quiet car in my last two train trips, and maybe I'm now now quiet car convert. Ugh. It's pretty nice, right? Yeah. As long as you're playing by the rules. Yeah. I even shushed someone. Oh, my gosh. You've really gone over. I did a very, I did so 
awesomely, though. Yeah. Very, very, it was very cool. If you do say so. I was very cool. It was definitely like the cool, <laughs> it was hey, it was like chill. It was like ever. chill. It was like really chill. It was, it was good. Oh, Everyone came away from the encounter thinking that was awesome. Oh my God. No, nothing like the passion of a convert to a... No, I'm not a shusher. It just, I happen. It, anyway, long story, which we will not tell. On this week's Gabfest, conservatives sweep the off, off year elections. What does it mean for 2016? Then Republicans squabbling over the presidential primary debates. And then the bizarre, tragic rise in death rates among middle aged American whites. Whites? White people? White people. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about the amazing piece that Emily wrote about a Stanford sex harassment assault case, which had a new twist this week. couple of great announcements. First of all, it's time, that time of year, for our Conundrums show, where the gathering your conundrums. Conundrums, of course, are hard questions, maybe moral, maybe ethical, maybe uh, etiquette-related. What are some good conundrums i should have thought yeah, some um, of our favorites of the year well they're big and small so how s- small would the amount of the piece of currency need to be before you pointed out to somebody that it had dropped out of their pocket okay that's, a, that's i just made that up you on made the that one yeah that was good god you're so spontaneous my man you know we've done great conundrum shows over the years and we're going to do another one this year but we need your conundrum so please Send them to us. You can email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. You can put them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. Or maybe best yet, tweet at us. Use the, the hashtag heygabfest. Um, and our Twitter handle is at slategabfest, but you don't need that. And if you can get a full conundrum in 100 and what would that be like? 100, well, but to be less with the yeah, hashtag. Then you really have won. Because, that's a great conundrum. Because um, sometimes the conundrums get a little Baroque. Yeah. All right. Speaking of Baroque, or perhaps modern music, we have a Superfest in New York City on November 16th. That's at Town Hall. You can get tickets at slate.com slash superfestnyc. And we have special guests. John, you know who was special guesting? We have two cast members from Hamilton. Can we announce that? Yeah, we can announce that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. David Deggs and and Leslie Odom Jr., who are uh, the Marquis de Lafayette slash Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. The damn fool who shot him. So come get your tickets to the Superfest, which we're doing with the Culture Fest, and hang up and listen at slate.com slash superfestnyc. That was not very emphatic. Well, I'd already done it once. It has to. And you you (laughs) once. it's like a second reference. You don't have to do the full thing on the second time around. Conservatives had a great night on Tuesday. Matt Beaven, a very conservative, rich guy, outsider, won the governorship in Kentucky, only the second Republican in 40 years to do so. Houston defeated a gay rights ordinance, an equality ordinance, thanks to a very aggressive campaign claiming that the law would allow male predators to harass women in women's bathrooms. Ohio rejected pot legalization. Republicans held the Virginia Senate. What is happening? Or what happened, John Dickerson? So I think what happened is a version of what we saw in 2014, which is in election in non-presidential election years, Republicans on issues that in regions of the country where conservatives vote more than Democrats or conservatives vote more than liberals tend to win. So you would expect... What happened, you know, in all of those races, except maybe Virginia is the most interesting one just because Virginia is the state 
where when Bob McDonald won, Republicans said, aha, we figured out how to pick the lock of the purple state. We figured out how to win the excerpts around Washington, and we've totally figured out how to do this. Then when Terry McAuliffe won, Democrats said, aha, we figured out how to win in a purple state, and it's all about the women's vote, and we're going to like figure out how to talk to women, and it'll be perfect, and we'll win, and we'll use that strategy in Colorado in 2014 against Cory Gardner. And then, boom, Cory Gardner wins, and you know, Udall loses in Colorado. And so, so Virginia, anything that happens in Virginia is fascinating because it'll be totally overread. And Terry McAuliffe fought to try and win the one seat that he needed to win, bring it into Democratic hands. And he lost. So does that tell us something grand? I don't know. If there's a race that did or could, that would be it. But the others just seem to me fall into a pattern that we've seen, you know, in the in the last in the sort that's been going on in the country since the Civil Rights Act. Emily, why are Democrats such terrible off year or off off year voters? In Kentucky, you have this huge number of people who are primarily Democrats who presumably have benefited from Obamacare who may in fact lose it because you have a governor coming in who's profoundly against it. There's ambiguity about what he might do. But they didn't bother to vote. Why are Democrats so bad? Why can't they get themselves to the polls? Right. Well, I mean, I don't know how much to fault the the lack of organization, whether there is just not a strong enough get out the vote effort in a state like Kentucky on an off-year election without the galvanizing force of the presidential election behind that. Or how much to attribute this to the voters themselves and an attitude that is apathetic or at least doesn't, with enough urgency, appreciate the ways in which the people who represent you outside the White House matter a great deal. And I, I mean, do you guys tie this back to the article by Matt Iglesias we talked yeah. about a couple of weeks ago in terms of, right, so just to reprise that, that the Democrats are, I don't know if obsessed with the presidency is going too far, but that essentially on purpose or by accident, Democrats have staked an enormous, far too much of their success on hanging on to the White House and everything else is kind of like pocket change underneath that. And that is a really damaging way to run a political party. Yeah, I mean, but these things go in... If Democrats were like Republicans, they would see this problem and and launch a concerted effort that the Republicans have been working on since Newt Gingrich was leading the effort at GOPAC in the 80s and 90s to build slowly across the country a farm team of Democratic candidates. And it takes a long, long time. I mean, Gingrich, did he start it in the 70s? I don't know if he started in the 70s, but, you know, the... The Republican rise in these state houses and in and in Congress has been a long, super long project, and so now it's up to the Democrats to sort of. It's not like the Democrats do don't know this; they're aware. Yeah, of it. they are. They just have to. You know, you have to come up with a programmatic, like super structured effort backed by one of these, you know, billionaires like a bunch from, of billionaires, from yeah. uh, Silicon Valley. I think one of the interesting things about Kentucky is the idea that it's remarkable for a Republican to win the governorship. Kentucky feels to me. Like, if it was a Democratic state, it was a Democratic state purely by, you know, this is the last uh, tentacle of history holding on to it. It's like West Virginia, which is a Democratic state, which is just obviously, given the current patterns of voting behavior and who, who dem- demographics, it is obviously a state that means to be Republican. It's religious. It's poor white people. Coal. Coal. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it, this is the de- I mean, this is the death of split ticket voting that we've been seeing over a long period of time is that the state's profile is increasingly not distinct from its presidential vote profile. And that's a big that's that's why everything feels like it's a parliamentary system. All the elections have to do with the presidency. Emily, let's talk about Houston, where you had the hero hero ordinance, which was a non-discrimination law for sexual orientation, which was no, not just sexual orientation. It was a broad equal rights law. It went down over a fight about transgender access to bathrooms, but it was a broad equal rights ordinance, which had been passed by the city council. But then it was turned into a referendum a voter referendum. Conservatives must have gotten it on the ballot. So so the New York Times headline on this was hate trumped fairness. And clearly the campaign against Hero was all about these bathroom predators. We all know those bathroom predators. But is it what what did hate trump fairness, Emily? I actually don't think that's quite right. I think fear trumped fairness. And I know that's not my idea. I'm pretty sure it's Mark Joseph Stern's idea on Slate, and it might be Brian Lauder's idea. (laughs) So one of them wrote that this week, and I'm just stealing it. I felt like the ad against this hero ordinance that I watched was like the Willie Horton ads of sexual orientation or or of sex. I mean, it was. And then there were T-shirts that said no men in the women's bathroom, which seems like, you know, on its face, it seems like, okay, sure, whatever. That's harmless enough. But of course, it's not harmless because transgender women are not men. They're women. And if they are women, then they, of course, should be able to use the women's room. And the women's room is not a place where, I mean, women pee in stalls anyway. It's it's a place where you can have both privacy and inclusion of transgender people. And I, I just find it really dismaying that the prospect, let's play it out. What's the real fear here? The real fear here is that if some people who are gender nonconforming enough that they could look like men, even though identify as, as women, if they're allowed to walk into the bathroom, that makes bathrooms more dangerous for girls I think is like that was certainly the ad was like a little schoolgirl in her school but I don't think it's the gender people. the idea that gender nonconforming people are going to do it I think it's the idea no, is that no. men are going to men just men predatory right. men who all they want to do is be in women's bathroom are going to right but the, the promise that. I think is that if you let gender nonconforming women into the bathroom then men are going to misuse that privilege and they're going to come in So first of all, if you go into a bathroom and you harass someone or you assault them, it is still a crime. Nothing. Whether you're whether no matter what you (laughs) are. Right. And so I guess I guess to to give this its little shred of do, maybe you make it a tiny bit more likely that a man will pretend to be a woman to be a peeping Tom. And it would take like 10 more seconds to figure that out and identify that as a form of harassment that you would need but, to address. I, I like otherwise I don't know what this fear here, is about. But you know what I think it actually relates to is something slightly different. It was it, it, it calcified around this fear about bathrooms and that was very successfully exploited by opponents of it. But actually, I think this reflects a fear about the loss of single-sex institutions and single-sex yes. places in the world generally. Like the I idea think you're that totally right. There are institutions which for sometimes for bad reasons, but sometimes for good reasons, have been very male places of male refuge or male uh, bastions. And similarly for women, these are now seen as somehow affronts to 
to our notions of equality and are legally in danger is, I think, alarms people who want, who see the value sometimes in, in those single sense, sex institutions. And they don't want to have to defend them right. endlessly and like right, seem but- like seem like they're old time racist, sexist, whatever it is, because they they want to preserve them. Yeah, it's interesting. So do you think it's the locus of the fear is in the actual gender encroachment or that it is a another pebble on what they see as a huge avalanche of encroachments. So it's happening in religion. It's happening in conversation with political correctness. That there's just generally the old stuff you used to be able to do is all disappearing. And it comes down even to where you go to the yeah. bathroom. I think it's some I- of- I think it's more in this case, I think it's about the bathroom. And actually, very little of it that I've seen is about men worrying about losing the men's room. It's women worried about losing the women's room. So I was reading a whole lot of comments on the New York Times blog Motherload about this. And I was taken aback by how angry a lot of women are at what they see as this male incursion into the women's room. Like someone said, you know, I feel that people with two X chromosomes are once again having the rights pushed side to accommodate people with a Y and an X. I mean, I guess, but then that's reducing gender identity to chromosomes instead of recognizing that transgender women are trying to join the sisterhood. But, but, Wait, I, so but, we, em, but Emily, I guess I think of actually this question about that if, if, you, if you posit neutrality in, in all institutions, that troubles a lot of people. And bathroom is, I agree, it's like the place it starts. But to your point, John, I think that it, what I think it is, is that people who ha- belong to some single sex institution or have something which is a which is a, a divided institution just feel like they they don't want to seem like they're backward and they don't want to seem they don't want society and all their friends telling yes. them, you you know, you God, you're just as bad as somebody who supported Jim Crow or you're just fundamentally doing something that is malicious and evil and 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 people just don't want to have have that said about them. And so that's why... Well, but it's the bathroom and the locker room. And I think what's part of what's going on here is this feeling of like, oh, come on. We all think that sex segregated bathrooms and locker rooms are reasonable. Like, who wants to... Right? If if this is about having a lot of men show up in the ladies' room, then it's a loser because women don't want men in the ladies' room. It's just that that's not actually what's at issue here. That's what's upsetting. It's about women being able to be in the women's room and just expanding the definition of who gets to be a woman. All right, let's talk a little bit, John, just in closing about what, why the polling was so wrong. And is that significant? So the polling in Kentucky in particular was way sure. off. I, uh, I don't know what the answer to that is other than low small turnout. sample, low turnout. Yeah, like hard to predict these kind of off-year elections. So I'm going to hang my head on that even though I'm kind of riffing there. Do they know if, it was a, if, they, if the miss was because it was undercounting Republicans or overcounting Democrats? Or is I, yeah, Republicans I'm guessing they're undercounting Republicans. But I'm, again, that could be totally wrong. Because A, I'm just, I just don't know the answer to that question for which I apologize. But B, I want to raise one higher, bigger, and more interesting conversation, which we can then blow off for the moment, but return to again another time. Harold Meyerson wrote a great piece in The American Prospect about the debate going on in the Democratic Party, which doesn't get near the attention it should or near the attention that the fight going on in the Republican Party gets. But the argument in the presidential election, which is like Democrats need to make a loud claim for redistribution, that there has been redistribution going on in the wrong direction for the last 
say 1979 or 97, depending on where you want to set the time period. But basically, all the wealth and money has been flowing to the 1% from the middle class. And that in order to be successful, Democrats, and particularly at the presidential level, because it has such symbolism, need to be very loud, sort of Bernie Sanders type loud about the inequities in the structure of the system and that there needs to be a wholesale intervention into the economic system by government and that this is what Democrats need to campaign on. And if they don't, they will continue to have these losses. Then on the other side of that argument is something like group Third Way, which argues, no, the, the stagnation in wages and the the um, unpleasant job picture for the middle class is the result of the fact that are Democrat that Democrats are not running on a kind of new 21st century economic understanding that doesn't try to punish Wall Street, but tries to find a way to educate and train people for the jobs of this century. And that debate about which one is both more effective in terms of helping people achieve a kind of healthy middle and, and pleasant middle class lifestyle, but B, is more politically popular and therefore will help the, the Democratic Party grow, is an argument that isn't really happening at the kind of screaming level you would imagine it should, given the terrible numbers for Democrats nationally. The Republican Party fight, which is really interesting, which is going on right now in a bunch of different ways, gets all kinds of coverage. But that Democratic fight doesn't really get that much. And it might be because there's nobody at the presidential level who's running as a kind of third way Democrat, a kind of... um, you know, what would the the Republican equivalent, a sort of John Kasich equivalent on the Democratic side? They're all running farther to the left on the on Hillary's the, not that far to the left. Well, but she's further to the left. She's than, much closer to the center than any yeah, but Republican she's, is. She's closer to the center. Uh, I mean, there is no see, center anymore, actually. Yeah. But that's one of the problems. But she's not um, she's not actively disagreeing with Bernie Sanders in any big way on the question of whether the economic system has been tilted and needs to be totally redesigned. Let's hear from our first sponsor, which is Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive. It has multi-year commitments, hidden fees. But there's a better way, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. And you can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You'll save at least 50% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. If you sign up now, you can get our special offer if you use our promo code GABFEST. That gets you a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. President Obama had fun with the Republican presidential candidates this week about their squabbling over debates. Have you noticed that every one of these candidates say, uh, you know, Obama's weak. He, he, he's, he, you know, people, Putin's kicking sand in his face. When I talk to Putin, uh, he's going to straighten out. Just looking at him, I'm going to, he's going to be... And then it turns out they can't handle a bunch of CNBC moderators. So, John, that was a very funny line from the president. Why are the candidates so in a tither about 
these debates. Wait, is it tither a word or is it know. a tizzy just, or a lather? I think you, I think I, you spliced. I, I like tizzy. A, I like a tither. I like a tither. We used to play that during recess. Uh, tither I ball. I think tither might be a word. Wait, I don't know. Uh, we'll anyway, see. anyway, um, they are all a Twitter uh, in the Republican field. First of all, can I just say, listening to that clip of President Obama, he was f- incredibly frustrated in 2014 and felt quite con- quite constrained by the Democrats who were running because they wouldn't let him out on the campaign trail. And he thought, I can go out there and like make my case and have fun. And clearly he you know, relishes the idea of this period, this twilight period between when there's a Democratic nominee and when he probably has to go back into his box. Maybe, depending on where his popularity is at the time. but um, A time in which he can accomplish little with Congress, but say whatever the hell he wants. Right, right. So he's (laughs) clearly enjoying. But anyway, I think there's a couple of things going on. Substantively, they had issues with the last debate. The way the debates are organized, the RNC, just as with the Democratic Party, takes care of the negotiations with the networks. And so the candidates after the CNBC debate were like, wait a minute, why was there no conservative moderator? Why did you have, you know, and they... They could blame the RNC for negotiating a deal in which there weren't certain, you know, absolute declarations. This happens every campaign. The candidates and, and in fact, the setup this year was supposed to fix the problem last time. But all, last time in 2012, the Republican candidates all said, we cannot keep having debates every day. There was one period where there was a debate on a Saturday night and then a debate Sunday morning. There were just there were like almost 30 debates in the Republican field. And it was crazy. So they all at one point got together and said, you know, OK, we're just going to not do any more of these debates. And if we all agree, we won't have to do them. But the problem is the candidates at the lower end of the tier who were, had no money and couldn't raise it were using the debates to build their brand. Newt Gingrich being the most um, notable example of that. And so they would never agree to the collective bargaining. So there was a tr- there was a sort of tragedy of the commons thing is that they all had a common interest until they didn't until they all had their own self-interest. And that's why the effort to kind of negotiate fell apart when they all went off in their separate directions in the end. So, Emily, if I were a Republican, I would think, you know, these debates have had a huge audience. We are absolutely swamping the Democrats in terms of enthusiasm, interest. And yeah, so the price is we have have John Harwood asking a couple of questions we don't like. But shouldn't they be overjoyed at how the debates are working? Well, I guess this is the difference between the Republican voters and the candidates. And the RNC seems like it's standing more with the candidates. I have a little trouble separating the outrage over this debate from grandstanding and complaining about the press in general. I mean, Ted Cruz got so much positive feedback from turning the press into a punching bag at this last debate. And so it just feels like it's all mixed up. There were some kind of sharp, uh, disrespectful questions, I guess you could say that. I mean, starting out by saying to Trump, like, are you running the cartoon version of a presidential candidacy? That seemed a little rude to me in the moment. But most of it was a kind of refusal to engage with substance, you know, questions that were like reasonable questions that candidates didn't want to answer. And so then they just started tossing it back in the face of the moderators. I think that's right. I think there is a certain a lot of this that has to do with working the refs and also with fundraising off of the being, you know, under the assault. So they had legitimate, absolutely legitimate grounds on some of the complaints. And then they amped it up tenfold because... It you know works to take umbrage. Here's what I don't 100 percent understand. Maybe I 95 percent understand it, but we'll talk about it. Is why we'll if you if you are the if you're the the GOP and you're a bunch of presidential candidates, why 
not run the debates yourself. The the the, oh, pro- the debates are like our marketing for the Republican Party. Yeah. So here's the here's why. Frame it as you want to frame it. It's um they're really expensive and they are hard to put on. The tech having watched the people at CBS do it for our next debate uh, our debate on the 14th. It's amazing how much work they do and how much technical expertise is required. It's like landing an army to put one of these things together. The networks have this super special expertise, and the people who are doing it have been doing it for a long time. And there's all this stuff that changes on the fly. You know, you think, oh, it's going to work this way, and you land, and it doesn't like. So even if you had, let's say you had the Koch brothers wanted to put on a bunch of these, you so you'd have the money to pay for it. You would have some challenges pulling it off because of the technical aspects of it. And also, oh, the, the answer I thought you were going to give, which was maybe not even necessary, is that why would, let's say, your network, CBS, ever why, – why would it choose to run a debate that was being put on by the GOP itself? Right. Wouldn't you have a hard time getting actual you know, media organizations to do that? You would because the media organizations would say, well, this is just a press release. So, you know, In other words, there's no editorial. And also, I should, th- I should say – that in two ways, the candidates benefit from an outside editorial presence. One, they get to beat up on the outside editorial presence. So Ted Cruz, best thing that ever happened to Ted Cruz was the fact that it was uh, moderated by the mainstream media. Um, and that was true, certainly, of Newt Gingrich. So he, they wouldn't want that to go away because they're building their can- candidacies on that. But I think also, in a purely substantive point of view, if a candidate takes a fastball from a moderator and is able to totally handle it, it's a sign of, of excellence and uh, accrues to their benefit and is successful. If it's, if it's a hometown, homegrown thing, it has less chance to have as big of an impact. Emily, j- just last thing, and then I want to talk about one other slightly separate subject for a second. It, do you think that the Republicans who are, have been griping and sort of got, got together to come up with demands about it. Do they actually want the debates to change in substance or just in the kind of logistics of them? Do they want different questions or do they just want them to be run differently? Well, they said they wanted different questions. They said they wanted essentially editorial control. Then the more reasonable request they made, I thought, was 30-second opening statements and 30-second closings, which allow, obviously, the candidates to frame their answers and have a more sustained moment with the voters. And that seemed to me like if you were going to have a compromise, maybe that's it, even though those 30 seconds, which, of course, are get multiplied by 10 at the moment, are pretty boring. Yeah, although, you know, they give the opening statement no matter what question you ask them anyway. True. If you don't have an opening <laughs> statement and you say, like, what's your first name, they give you the opening statement. They're so then the is, is that an argument to just have the opening statement so they'll answer the first question? Yeah, I don't know. You have I'm not... a first question that you don't expect uh, to get answered. Yeah, to see on the 14th and see how we figure that exactly. out. Exactly. Well, all right. Don't ask, one of, uh, don't ask any question I recommend as your first question. <laughs> <laughs> so l- let's just shift gears slightly. Ben Carson gave us so much pleasure this week. Ben Carson saying that the pyramids may have been used to store grain. They weren't built as funerary monuments. And then there's this crazy CNN investigation of Ben Carson's early life saying his accounts of himself as being an angry, violent child and young man do not comport with people's recollections of him. Emily, in the case of this uh, idea that Ben Carson said he stabbed somebody once or tried to stab somebody once, but nobody else remembers that, does that matter if he made something like that up? I feel like for him, maybe it kind of doesn't because he lives in the 
non-reality based zone with Donald Trump and the normal laws don't apply. But I think it's one of the many reasons he won't actually be the nominee. And also, can we just pause on the oddity of saying that you tried to stab someone if you didn't? I mean, especially if you're a black man and usually black men in politics get worried about seeming like they're violent and angry. There's just something kind of bizarre about the whole thing. I, I mean, um, I get that it's like his narrative of redemption, but yeah. still. Well, I mean, remember that Barack Obama uh, fuzzed up a lot of his narrative, too, in his book and admitted to True. to fuzzing and, and making more dramatic than things were. So Carson is doing that maybe at some level. I haven't actually read the full CNN uh, investigation. I think also you could imagine a kid being very, very, very angry and not maybe exhibiting it in every possible right. way that he did, but certainly having that rage inside of right. him. So you get a problem right. there because you're... Maybe he felt like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's a problem, too. I think to your opening question, David, there is a thing about the origin narrative of candidates. When Haley Barber wanted to raise questions about Barack Obama, he said, you know, we just don't know much about his beginnings. I mean, we knew, we knew George Washington chopped down the cherry tree, which, of course, he didn't. But, <laughs> you know, his point was... With leaders, we know their sort of their their origin story, and because Obama didn't have one, even though Obama had written a book about his origin story, that that was kind of left him unmoored to the familiar. So every candidate has that challenge when they are undefined. So you could imagine Carson has that, except that Carson is quite well defined, which is that he had a big, long, super successful career as a neurosurgeon, about which. There have been movies made, and his mother was what he claimed her to be, and he grew up in the place he said he grew up. So his his origin story doesn't rely on this bit. This is a bit that might be in dispute, but it is and doesn't go to the heart of who he is. So I don't think it really either politically matters or really substantively matters in terms of telling us a new thing or an important or interesting thing about his character. Let's hear from another sponsor this week, which is Blue Apron. You need to know how to cook. Not only do you need to feel like you know your way around the kitchen, but cooking at home means eating healthier and saving money instead of ordering expensive takeout again. But where do you start? Blue Apron has you covered. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions. Each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No overwhelming trips to the grocery store. No more sad takeout. No matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes like roasted cod, honey nut squash, golden raisins, parsley, Swiss chard, and couscous right in your own kitchen. You can cook with ingredients you've never used before, like watermelon radishes or farro or purple potatoes. And recipes are between 500 to 700 calories per portion. They're delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash gabfest. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. An extraordinary study came out this week from Nobel Prize winning economist Angus Deaton and Anne Case, who is his wife and also a researcher. They found out that while death rates in general are declining around the developed world for almost everyone, and at a pretty good clip, they have risen sharply for middle-aged white Americans, specifically for middle-aged white Americans without college education. The causes of this appear not to be disease or obesity or even smoking, but rather suicide and the 
drug and alcohol abuse, the effects of drug and alcohol abuse. According to Deaton and Case, nearly half a million people are dead who would not be dead had normal trends continued, an epidemic which is on the scale of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. So I thought this was an absolutely stunning study. Emily, what's your what was your initial reaction on, on reading this? I mean, shock and horror. It just seemed really dramatic and an example of the kind of breakdown in the fabric of society or, or proof of that in a way that we didn't have before. I just also spent a weekend reporting in Charleston, West Virginia with people who were white and probably didn't have college educations. And I kept thinking about that because of these issues of opiate addiction and heroin addiction and the way that painkillers can become such a corrosive force in people's lives. Um, It seemed like we were seeing this incredibly tangible result of those trends. So one of the things that Deaton and Case say is that there is, while they don't have a definitive proof, they they postulate that there is an economic root to a lot of this, that the decline of meaningful work for uh, low-educated people uh, has had tons of effects, that they have economic uncertainty, their social ties fray, their communities are weaker, people end up resorting to drugs and alcohol, drugs and alcohol are more available, particularly drugs. They have actual lots of pain. They actually have more pain. There's more loneliness. There's social anomie. Um, John, were you, did, did you find the economic argument of this persuasive? I did find it persuasive because we've been kind of covering this story for a long time when we talk about inequality and you talk about the stagnant wages for the middle class and the fact that the 50 million or so who only have high school educations are kind of increasingly being cut out of prosperity. You knew all that there were all those bad effects. So in a way, and in doing a lot of reporting about um, income inequality and wages and how to how to tackle this problem in the presidential context and debate, this in the conversations I was having this week about it, there were a lot of economists and, and other policy experts I was talking to who would bring this up kind of without being prompted and basically say inequality is killing us. What's the analogy of a thing where you know there's a bad thing happening and or, you know, you sort of you know, there's a leak and maybe there's a leak and then you like peer behind the drywall and you see it's like rotted the entire house. I mean, that that this was um, so it sort of stands to reason. But on the other hand, to see it all in one place. You didn't want to look at it and then you had to look at it. So, Emily, one thing that's weird is the way the race aspect of the conversation, because the death rates for African-Americans and Hispanics in the same cohort have gone down. It's Although for African-Americans- Although they're still worse. They're, they're worse for African-Americans, but improving. Why would these effects that are so devastating in white middle-aged America not be so devastating or relatively so devastating in black America? Well, if we're right that this is tar- tied to these larger forces of economic inequality and the social fabric, then it makes more sense. I mean, I was connecting it to your dear wife, Hannah's reporting about single parenthood. It used to be that single moms were common in African-American neighborhoods and communities and not in white communities. Now we have lots and lots of single motherhood in white communities. So if you take that as one marker along with poverty and economic inequality of like a big problem that makes people's lives more stressful and difficult, and that could have health consequences, then you see the way in which 
white people who aren't well educated are facing challenges that are not the same as people of color, but, you know, have some of the same class concerns and deprivation that people of color have. I, I mean, this may be a total bullshit psychology. And I, I you know, forgive me, America, forgive me, Gaffer's listeners. Is there something about so I think the thing about being a white person in America is like it was a position of great privilege. But a white man in America, in particular, is a position of great privilege. It has been since the founding of America. That's been the place to be. And there's a this sense of loss for white America. And I think it's a lot of what is driving kind of the anger and alienation that you see fueling conservative politics, I think, comes from the sense of loss. And, and you think it's it, actually I, killing people. Well, I think that I, mean, I think people that I think why like would this why would this affect use. why would this affect white Americans more than black Americans and Hispanic Americans? So white Americans feel like they deserved it and they, it, that you feel stronger about something you've lost than yeah. something you didn't have. Yeah, and that, and that maybe that causes crazy. you more pain and more distress. And that that then rings out into these other effects. I mean, that's just again, that's pure right. bullshit it would take several steps of, of, of research to prove that but i i feel like you're on to something i mean just speaking intuitively what do you think the the public policy remedies are for what deaton and case found i mean so so one theory about why these declines are not happening or why these this rise in death rates is not happening in europe is that people in europe generally have much stronger pensions they have much more economic security even people who are unemployed or even people who are marginal economically there's a those countries have much stronger social safety nets and that so people feel uh, more secure so is that is the answer like let's you know buttress the social safety net or is the answer really let's make opiates hard to get or is the answer let's make sure everyone more people go to college that actually if you just got more people into college that would be the thing to do so is it is it you know where, where do you see the the right set of solutions I mean, getting people into college, you also have to get them to graduate in order for them to get a benefit from going to college as opposed to a lot of debt. The other thing I think about is, um, you know, these deep-seated questions of class and how you make people, how you give people real opportunities for social mobility. The American criticism of the European system is that you end up with an underclass that is living off of the social safety net. So conservatives especially obviously reject that. And they want something that is more opportunity-based. And it's so hard to Instead, know. Instead, we have a, in America, we have a an American underclass that is dying without a social safety net. Well, right. I mean, that is a, such a brutal way of putting it, but it does feel like there's a very stark way in which that's what this study is suggesting. All right, that was. I I I think this is. I think this study actually could end up being a really really important study because one, white people be, being who they are. I think the race part of it actually is going to make this thing more talked about because it, because it's going to become a talking point for white Americans. And I bet, right, it, it, gives I bet Americans... it leads to pol- policy measures in a way it wouldn't if it was all Americans or if it was black Americans. Do you think it, it leads to, I mean, it's so symptom and disease. I mean, do you think they just treat the drug overdoses? I bet so that, yeah. that's, if I were a Republican candidate, I bet it's going to be like, I'm going to, we're going to bring you know the drug war, what it, we won't be called the drug war but like on something else like well, we're going to we're going to fight the opiate uh except scourge. the politicians have been uh, yeah. less willing to imprison people and really crack down on heroin and opiate addiction because it's white people or at least it seems linked you hear chris christie talking about addiction which he's been doing for months and months in new hampshire in particular where they're having a big problem with this 
And it's all it's not about locking him up. It's all about treating them. And he there was a video of him doing his normal pitch, but which people just sort of caught on to this week about saying, you know, when his mother died of lung cancer, people didn't say, oh, you know, she deserved it. She didn't stop when they told her to. And yet that's not the way they treat people with lung cancer, but it is the way they treat addicts and they should be treated better. And so it's a very therapeutic approach to addiction. Right. And it also doesn't address why people take drugs in the first place, which is a complicated question. It's not like there's one answer to that. But part of it can be a sense of hopelessness about what other dimensions your life has. Let us go to cocktail chatter. We need a cheerful, we need some cheerful chatter to get us out of this uh, dark place. Do either of you have a cheerful chatter? I have a cheerful chatter. Okay, bring it. I want to recommend a new book by Lauren Redness called Thunder and Lightning. Have you guys seen this book? Yeah. It's it, it. very, very it's frightening. So... It's Galileo. 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 Galileo Figaro. Figaro. Beelzebub. The devil of Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, my God. I had no idea what I was about to want. Do you yeah. want to just take over entirely? Because you're doing a much yeah. better job than I could ever do. No, but the Freddie Mercury hour is over. Go ahead. Okay. Well, so Lauren Redness wrote this book called Radioactive about Marie Curie and her husband, Pierre Curie, which I was completely fascinated by. And sh- and now she has this new book called Thunder and Lightning, which I suppose you could say it's about the weather. The subtitle is Weather, Past, Present, Future. But really, it's just a launching pad for Lauren Redness to go on this amazing journey that's like it's sort of like a graphic novel, but with much um, more full art than, you know, a comic would have. And this incredible array of techniques she uses and then her storytelling is really wonderful, too. I mean, I just like it's it's a special object, this book. It really is. Um, and I have been pushing it on everyone I know because it's just really cool. John Dickerson. Uh, well, mine is, um, I don't know, my chatter. My, it's the um, sort of the age-old story. A vice president turned president criticized his former secretary of defense who served as vice president to his son, another president causing his son, the president, to distance himself from his president father and also causing his other son, who would like to be president, to do the same thing. Uh, this is the complicated story of Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush, which is a book by John Meacham, which comes out next week, published by Random House. And in the book, George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States, says that Dick Cheney uh, and Donald Rumsfeld served his son, George W. Bush, the 43rd president of the United States, served him poorly. And this was the long-held view, or, or reportedly the long-held view, of George Herbert Walker Bush, but never really put into so many words. And now it has been which caused a lot of, well, which caused George W. Bush to say, I love my father, but uh, these were all my decisions and it wasn't Cheney and Rumsfeld who served me poorly. And and um, and it's never quite iron-ass Cheney, as, um, as George Herbert Walker Bush calls him. It's never quite, he just, Bush's criticism is that he was too far right. He doesn't say, you know, is responsible for messing up the post-war or is responsible for ruining, you know, there's no... It's just kind of he was too far right and Rumsfeld was the same thing. George W. Bush said, I love my dad, but, and then basically stood behind Cheney. Jeb Bush then went on and did the same thing. This is not what Jeb Bush wants, of course. He's trying to revive his campaign and more reminders of the Bush legacy 
and and the complexity of the Bush years and the disappointment with the Iraq war is not what he needs brought up. But I thought two things interested me about this in addition to that is, one, Jeb Bush in defending his dad. I mean, this is just the kind of messiness of when you're father and brother were both presidents and, you know, father-son relationships are hard enough as it is, but when it's president on president, um, it gets very supercharged. But um, I thought one thing was interesting was when Jeb Bush tried to explain what his dad was getting at in this book. He said, uh, Jeb Bush said, I think my dad, like a lot of people that love George, want to try to create a different narrative, perhaps just to, just because that's the natural thing to do, Right. So this was interesting to me because it means one of two things. People, why would people who love George Bush want to create an alternate narrative? Wait, which George Bush? George Sorry. W. Bush. Okay. It seems to me you have two possibilities. One, they look at George W. Bush's presidency, and because they have so much love for him, even the smallest problems with the presidency cause them to try to create an alternate narrative because even the smallest wrinkles in the bedsheet must be smoothed over. The alternative view is that there were such big problems in the presidency that those who love George Bush have to create an alternative narrative, basically, that that Cheney was running things, because they want to let him off the hook. I think the latter is probably more likely. But it it's sort of – here you have Jeb Bush trying to kind of explain his dad, but in doing so, in a kind of – he damns his brother with – it's not exactly damning his brother with faint praise, but he suggests – Everybody loves George Bush has to come up with a narrative to apologize for for his presidency. But the final thing that's really interesting about this book is it is, I think, going to elevate. It's a reassessment and reappraisal of George Herbert Walker Bush's presidency on the foreign policy front that he managed the decline of communism without single, maybe not a single shot, but without massive war. Um, and that on the d- domestic front that he um, did a brave thing in basically pushing through a budget agreement that had tax increases that ended up making it so that he wouldn't be reelected because he was so um, his base was so disappointed with him. Those two things, a kind of um, a, a diplomacy overseas that isn't based strictly on kind of strength and chest thumping that's that, that's talked about in a lot of um, the candidates that are running. It's a more kind of diplomacy centered foreign policy, not a strength, strength, strength foreign policy, which is what we hear in the campaign. So that's one interesting. And then on the domestic policy front, Jeb Bush has said his father's decision to increase taxes was the most heroic thing a president has done in the modern era. That's not at all the view of everybody running for president. Um, And so it's just a way in which this family history, which has important things in it to tell us about our modern politics, just kind of keeps washing over him and and adding new things to to bedevil his campaign. My chatter, I steal from a tweet from Zach Cantor, uh, who looked at the CIA's 1944 Simple Sabotage Field Manual. And there's this portion about how to sabotage organizations. So if you're a CIA mole in an organization, how do you sabotage it? I want to read this whole eight-part section about how to sabotage organizations and conferences because I think we're all going to find it very familiar. Number one, insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Number two, make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences. Never hesitate to make a few appropriate patriotic comments. Number three, when possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible, never less than five people. Number four, bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. (laughs) Number five, haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes, and resolutions. 
Number six, refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to reopen the question <laughs> of the advisability of that decision. <laughs> Number seven, advocate caution. Be reasonable and urge your fellow conferees to be reasonable and to avoid haste, which might result in embarrassments or difficulties later on. Number eight, be worried about the propriety of any decision. Raise the question of whether such action, as is contemplated, lies within the jurisdiction of the group or whether it might conflict with the policy of some higher echelon. I just love that. I just thought, like, great. It, you know. How many strategies have you deployed, David? <laughs> I, I actually, I congratulate myself. I, I'm, I, I, You're not we, manipulative we, we at all, heart. This is all very demonic. We all, uh, we all have been in organizations which have been oh, afflicted man. with one or more. Of they, I, if, if it had been at the right time, number nine would be schedule lots of conference calls. Oh, yeah. Ugh. yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, lots of conference <laughs> calls. No, with video. That would be, if you were doing it now, it would be, like, schedule video hangouts. Yes. Wait, because... And on not quite, and make sure the Wi-Fi is not quite good enough, right? Because the the amount of time people spend, <laughs> oh. like, wait, uh, I, can, wait, can I, can we? I drop, yeah. yeah. Can we, let's all dial back in. I think there should be a Marvel superhero, since they're kind of always trying to come up with new evil villains. A superhero who has to fight a villain whose job, whose whose power is basically that he forces people into conference calls <laughs> against their will. All right. With that, let's do our credits. Our intern is Tark Barrett, who has one more week with us. Our Tark, producer, we're going to miss you. He has one more week. I He's, know, but I'm already anticipating my dismay. Uh, our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. And send us your conundrums with the Hey Gabfest hashtag. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Yeah, we will. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.